The Paul Kaharski Podcast is brought to you by Yazoo Brewing Company, a Nashville original since 2003. Paul Kaharski, paulkaharski.com. All these broadcasts are brought to you by Pickers Vodka, which you see right there. But today we kind of have a triple sponsorship going on because we're also going to podcast this, which is brought to you by Yazoo Brewery. And we're happy to have Party Foul back on board. Party Foul is now the official sponsor of content provider Blake Bettingfield, former Titans scout. For 19 years, he scouted for the Titans, the last six of which, through 2017, college scouting director. Now a citizen of the world, not encumbered by the football hours, but he knows this roster and he scouted the not just the Titans, but the league and college for 19 years. Write a preview column of the upcoming game, talking about the matchups, and he's going to write a scouting level review of every game the Monday after. So he will debut tomorrow. We've already uh, seen an initial version of his piece on a scouting approach to how you look at the Titans at the Packers in preseason game number one. And then on Friday, uh, lunchtime or later, he'll give us a review of what he saw, what questions got answered, which didn't, and which newly arise. So uh, how much does this kind of fit into what you would have been doing anyway? Maybe you wouldn't have been writing it all down, but it's what you would have been thinking in the press box. No question. This is a different approach to what you do as a scout, but it's it's along the same lines. You, you go into every preseason game with an idea in mind of what you want to see, and this time I'm putting it on paper instead of verbalizing it in the office. So this is going to be an exciting time to, to actually put down for you guys uh, what I look for going into a preseason game. And then, obviously, after a game, kind of my thoughts along the line of players and how they played and, and that type of thing. We'll take some uh, questions. The one thing I thought we could run through because we were talking about it as I was taking forever to set up is the state of the wide receiver position. So Matthew's out with an injury unknown. Davis now, two consecutive days off. I don't know if you saw, he um, he went came out for stretch yesterday and then went back inside, which we didn't take as a good sign because Vrabel, if a guy's not practicing, has him inside the whole time. Um, so he had a day off pretty early, which turned people off, but now he's had back-to-back days off that look like injury-related. Um, and those are obviously two of the top three. Tajay Sharp getting a lot of work all outside. Looks like uh, probably the guy you guys were envisioning when you drafted him. But how much of a concern is this position, even if you have, even once they have, presumably Matthews and Davis help? Well, I think you know what you have in Rashard Matthews. He's been a veteran player that has come in and produced as soon as he got to the Titans from Miami. So he's he's a known quantity. Corey Davis showed in flashes last year that he can make some big plays at times, and then at others there's going to be some growing pains with him. I think Tywan Taylor's a, a wild card in this whole thing where he has ability to – be a run-after-catch type receiver, and also the ability with his route running to stretch the field at times. So, you know, he is a – there is a nice group there of those three if they're healthy. If they're not, then you start to see a lot of the depth concerns. You see Tajay Sharp, who didn't play last year. Tajay's a nice route runner with very good hands. He's got average speed and average run-after-the-catch ability. He's not a very strong receiver. So there's limited things you can do with Tajay. Tajay's not going to be a special teams type player either, so he's not going to carry that role going forward. And then you have some of the undrafted. Well, you have the Michael Campanero, who's been in the league and can be a slot receiver, returner, that type of player for you. Has some health concerns, durability concerns. 
And I think that's what you're going to run into. Marcus, to be successful, is going to need his playmakers on the field. He's going to need Delaney Walker at the tight end position. He's going to need Rashard Matthews. Those are your two known quantities. Then you're going to have to have Corey Davis step up and be that number five pick in the draft uh, where he was drafted and the expectations for him. And then whatever you can supplement with Taewon Taylor, Tajay Sharp, Michael Campanero. There's there's a lot of questions out there at the receiving position. We've seen guys like Campanero, Nick Williams, who's around clearly because he's been in the offense before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any explosive skills to him, but he'll get to the right spot. Uh, Darius Jennings, who's bounced around and was, uh, I think, had a game on the active mm-hmm. roster, a couple games on the active roster. He didn't wasn't active uh, last year's bounced around. He's shown some flashes. My thing with young receivers generally, because historically it's been a troubled position for this team, is not to count on them developing. I've kind of stopped myself and said, hey, we have to give LaFleur and Rob Moore a chance to see if they're different than every other coordinator coaching combination has been that's failed to develop anybody kind of out of the blue. The two big developed wide receivers were Derek Mason and Drew Bennett. Uh, but beyond that, you're hard to, it's hard to find a wide receiver in the franchise history who's kind of overachieved instead of underachieved. What, what's your expectation knowing what you do about LaFleur and Moore and these guys that maybe somebody comes out of nowhere to be safe? You know, I think that at this time it's going to be important for that group to stay healthy. Now, are you going to be able to pick a Burnett, an undrafted player, some of the other players fighting for that, those the last roster spot or practice squad? Those are high expectations for a player that wasn't drafted to come in and actually play a role for you. Whether it's a fifth receiver, that's possible. But if you're talking about a player that's going to play in the top three or top four uh, on game day, those are high expectations for someone who is an undrafted player. There are the rare occurrences like a Drew Bennett who was able to come on the roster and actually produce in camp and make the roster and actually produce in his rookie year and really have a nice career with the Titans and on and in the NFL with other teams. But, you know, those are the rare occurrences. You have you draft a player in a round for a, for a reason. You draft a Corey Davis with a fifth pick overall to be a starting receiver and an impact player. You draft a Taewon Taylor in the third round to be a player that plays a role within the offense. Anything after that is someone like a Justin McCarrens we drafted in the fourth round. Justin had a very nice career for a fourth rounder. Those were He met the expectations of a fourth rounder. Right. So when you're drafting players like that, you expect them to play within that where you where you value them. So, you know, this year they didn't have a lot of draft choices, weren't able to select a receiver later in the draft that maybe had a trait, a speed trait, a size trait, someone to come in and compete for a spot. There, there were just limited draft choices this year, so they weren't able to increase the competition at that position. If you're catching up, here's the content announcement. This is Blake Bettingfield, who scouted for the Titans for 19 years the last six through 2017 as college scouting director. Uh, I don't know how much you could say about what else you're doing now, but he's going to write for paulkowarski.com a preview column of every game and a reaction column of every game from a scouting perspective. So the kind of things he would have been looking at from the press box, the kind of things he thinks John Robinson and and Ryan Cowden and the scouting staff are looking at uh Questions that get answered, uh, questions that come up, and that sort of thing. He's been a guest on here. He's been a guest on the Midday 180. Uh, I think he'll bring a perspective that you're not going to find anywhere else, uh, both on this team but generally from scouting. 
and, and with some specific things that, that those of us without his expertise won't be able to tell us about how the guard is doing on uh, outside zone plays, which we want to know about, but I admit I'm not necessarily qualified to tell you about. He'll be able to take us um, to that additional level. We're going to talk for another minute about receivers, then we'll take some, some questions. Um, LaFleur told us on Midday 180 yesterday he likes the idea of a dedicated slot guy. Campanero's been that guy so far. Taewon, it looks like, has played 100% outside. Now, part of that, obviously, is Matthews has missed all 11 practices. Davis has missed three of the 11. If that's a healthy stable and Taewon's becoming an outside guy, who do you imagine the dedicated slot receiver would be? At this point, it's going to have to be Campanero. And I think what you're going to end up seeing is a lot less three receiver sets and more two tight end packages. You have Does that surprise you? Like when he got when Lafleur got here, were you like me and you thought this will be a, a three wide receiver team as soon as they're able? No question. But you you have it, from a personnel standpoint, you look at it as who's the best player on the field at the time? Is it a Delaney Walker who lines up in the slot? John U. Smith takes Delaney's position at a tight end. Or would you rather have Campanero and Delaney? So it becomes a personnel. What's the best personnel to attack the defense that you're playing against? It could be a week-to-week basis if that's the group they're going to go in and play with. Taewon may be the type of receiver, and he was coming out of Western Kentucky, that it's better to feed him one position at a time, let him learn that position, and then move forward. Whether he's learning the outside right now, or maybe he moves inside later, where he can um, uh, learn the slot, which there's a little bit more savvy and instincts to play that position. Campanero being a veteran, being a shorter, quicker type athlete, he could fit in that role. Will he have great production? He hasn't yet in his career at that position, but it's uh, not out of the realm. How could Richard do in there? You know, Richard's not really built for that. Veteran-wise, he can learn a position. He can do some things. He can make some of the short, intermediate uh, routes, but he's better on the outside. He's better of a chain mover, first down guy. Uh, he, He has a very good feel for uh, down the distance, the flags, what he needs to do. Uh, Rashad's been a very good, complete receiver uh, within his skill set. Do you draft the best talent or the best fit to the system, somebody's asking? You know, the system's changed over time just in the last few years. So if you draft the best talent available each draft, you have a better chance of hitting than missing. Now, if you start drafting toward the specific offense or defense that you're looking for, and you have these changes in the head coach and coordinators like he did this past year, you're going to lose some players. Uh, there was a couple of years ago when Mike Munchak was the head coach, we drafted a, a defensive end at LSU that fit the system that he was going to run. And once we made the change and moved on from Munchak and his defense to Ken Wisenhunt, the player no longer fit. Now, he was a, he was a nice player for the system where we drafted him but he wasn't going to fit the new one. So, you know, it's it's a little bit of a gamble at times, but you will need players to fit a role, uh, and you will draft at times for a system, but for the most part, you're better off drafting the best player available. How does Campanero compare to Weems, who uh, obviously didn't pan out last year? Very similar players. Veteran Weems was a little bit uh, older, but but same size, same skill set. Weems made his mark more on special teams. Uh, he could actually – cover kicks as well as return. So, you know, there was that added uh, versatility there, being able to run down the cover kicks. But that's what you're looking for in a fourth and fifth wide receiver. When you're going to make the team or be active on game days, you're going to have to cover kicks or return kicks. The versatility is important. You can't get by just being a nice route runner. 
You think the Titans think about somebody like Malcolm Mitchell? He's he's hurt, so it'd be a while before you looked at him. You know, Malcolm would be a guy for sure you look at if he's healthy and when he gets healthy. Uh, he's an athletic player. Uh, he's just had the injury bug. Had it back in college at Georgia, and he's carried it on through um, the NFL so far. So, But he is a player that would definitely uh, you would take a look at because coming out of the draft, he was a well-thought-of player, just had a number of injuries and, and really struggled staying healthy. Would you rather have him, uh, given if they're both healthy, him or Jordan Mann? You know, Jordan's a different player. Uh, Jordan's not going to run down and cover kicks unless he's changed uh, and just looking to stay in the league and kind of change his mindset and focus. Jordan's uh, very similar to Rashard Matthews in a lot of ways. Uh, probably not the hands Rashard has or the consistency catching the ball, but a bigger, more physical receiver than catch. Uh, it's going to be probably, if you bring a Jordan Matthews in, it's a Tajay Sharp, Jordan Matthews type uh, up in the air competition, and, and the winner would, would stay on the team. The loser would probably get cut at that point. But um, for Jordan to come in and be a player, he's going to have to take over somebody's role unless he – completely switches his mindset and becomes a guy that's willing to go down and cover kicks. It happens to players. Players come in with a certain mindset that they are a receiver or they are a safety, and, and very quickly they can turn into a special team Circumstances player. change, and you say, hey, yeah, it happened I'm with Donnie. sticking around. Donnie Nicky's a great example of thought that. thought he was a safety? Yeah, he thought he was a safety. It took over the special team's role because he was forced to, to be active on game days, and there was a time where we cut Donnie Nicky before the first game of the year to actually add an extra kicker when Joe Nendy got hurt and kind of woke Donnie up at that point. And he really embraced the special teams role when we brought him back, became a special teams captain, and had a nice long career at that position. We are uh, Periscope Facebook Live brought to you by Pickers Vodka. This is also being podcasted, which is brought to you by Yazoo Brew. And uh, Blake Benningfield, the new contributor, paulkowarski.com, with scouting perspective pregame and postgame, is brought to you by Party Foul. Hot chicken, local brews, boozy slushes. There's one in Murfreesboro. There's one in Donaldson. And our home base one is in the Gulch, not far from the zone office. We're most appreciative that they're on board making this possible I think it's going to be really uh, a great addition that adds uh, new texture, new depth, and stuff that you don't have. Uh, Mac wants to know what criteria you guys used in evaluating injuries in terms of measuring the quantity against maybe the type of injury when you're scouting. You know, part of the injuries that I've always said that you always leave that up to the expert. So as a, as a scout, you're going to go in and you're going to acquire the information. You're going to acquire information about the injuries, the off-the-field uh, obviously on the field, how they learn from coaches and how they you know, participate. Are they first in line? Are they first in the meetings? That type of stuff. That's part of the evaluation process. You're gathering information. Once we get the medical information, that, that goes to the trainers and the doctors. And you know, it, It's very tough for a scout to determine whether a player is injury prone or should not be drafted for an injury. Um, you know, It's one of those situations that it's not my expertise. My expertise was evaluating players, and that's what I did. So I handed that information off to trainers and doctors. But there are players that are injury-prone, and coaches can tell you that certain players, and this is part of that evaluation, certain players do not perform if they are not completely 100% healthy. I remember uh, there was a tight end in the league, and uh, great-looking frame, great athlete, extremely smart, couldn't be a more picture-perfect uh, view of what a tight end should be in the league, but he was a player that coming out of college did not like to play unless he was 100%. And that's 
part of his reputation. Uh, he's had a nice long career because of the intelligence and the athleticism and that type of thing. But he's also spent a lot of time on the injured reserve. And, um, you know, those are ty- the type players that you have to give that information to the trainers, give that information to the doctors, the general manager, and let them make that decision. So uh, in tomorrow's debut piece by Blake Bettingfield, you talk a little bit about uh, the thinking about practice squad, even at this early stage. How much and how conceivable is it that how did you guys monitor people on other teams who you thought might become available either for a spot on the 53 or potentially to be uh, pulled over to your practice squads off like 90 man rosters, 32 teams. Did you dole out specific guys to watch or how do you keep tabs on guys scattered among that, that big a field? So part of that group you're gonna you're gonna watch as preseason games go along. You're gonna have um, your pro scouts are gonna divvy up the league, and they're going to start looking at the preseason tape of games, and and not only watching the games, but actually reading some of the articles that happen in those cities. Whether it's a a journalist and a writer that covers the team on a day to day basis, they will give you a good indication of what the coaches are thinking, okay. or that's not fake. You know who is producing in practice because of injuries like the Titans have with Richard Matthews, with Arakpo, with some of these injuries, who has taken their spot. So those are things that alert the pro departments so they can start watching them on film. But during the draft process, you will go through a very long, extensive uh, process of not only ranking and evaluating the draftable players, but you're ranking and evaluating the undrafted players too. So there are players that the Titans or any team missed out on in the undrafted phase. So Part of it is, was the money? Maybe they were offered a signing bonus by another team. Well, you're going to keep an eye on that guy as training camp goes along because you liked him during the college evaluation process. So, you know, it is important to keep an eye on those guys. Don't lose sight of them. But they're always those players that sneak up in the preseason from maybe a big school, maybe a small school that uh, start producing on the NFL level. Maybe they didn't get that opportunity in the system they were in in college, but when they went to the NFL, it just stuck and it hit them at the right time, and, and they're producing. But maybe that team in the NFL has a log jam at a certain uh, position. You're always going to look at uh, the rosters that are deep at certain positions. The Titans, before they lost Ty Smith, would have been a corner. Other teams would have evaluated the corner position with the Titans to see who they're going to cut. Maybe they could get a Kalen Reed. Maybe they could get a player that could make their 53-man roster. That injury to Ty Smith kind of hurt. But those are the type of things that a pro department's looking at. Who's somebody like that? You you have a recollection of somebody you, you guys maybe just missed out on a draft, or you took somebody else because you had him slightly higher that came free that you brought in, whether he had success or not. But that's why he landed here for a time. You know, not right off the top of my head. We've had some players that uh, we eyeballed pretty hard, or we gave a nice amount of money to or we offered a nice amount of money to in free agency nothing right off the top of my head but I'm sure there are probably a few hundred you talked about uh, Rashawn Evans uh, when he came in we talked about how things went for him at Alabama and that they used him as a pass rusher earlier partly because there was a crowd but also partly because learning that inside spot for him and for a lot of guys there based on the complexities and the requests it takes a lot. Uh, I, I'm sure uh, maybe Alabama's inside linebacker spot's more complicated than Tennessee's, but he's been out since mm-hmm. the second, third, fourth day. Now, how much uh, we know when Corey Davis pulls a hamstring and he's the fifth pick in the draft, it's killing, ki- killing the 
a dynamic of the offense not to have him there. If Rashawn Evans continues to miss time or based on the time he's missed already, how much of a setback based on what his learning curve was at Alabama? I think it's going to slow it. It's going to slow the learning process. It's going to slow the development for the player. What happens is if you miss a, a week in training camp, it's like missing a month in the regular season. There is so much that goes into Right now, Rashawn is getting the mental routes. He's, he's in the meeting rooms. He's watching tape. He's listening. But he's not making mistakes. He's not on the field actually making a mistake that the coach can correct. He's not making the mental or physical issues uh, that need to be corrected by the coach. So he's going to have that later when he gets on the field. So there is a big, going to be a big hole in his development early on. Maybe they don't put him in uh, a lot of the base situations. Maybe they uh, they wait and use him in the nickel nickel spot where he can rush, or or maybe be on the inside next to J. Ron Brown and and be a um, be a more of a nickel player and teaching that as he grows and, and develops a little bit. The mental game is so important. The physical the physical ability he has, he'll be fine. It's just the mental where he can go out and use that physical ability. If you're thinking you're not playing fast, if you draft a fast player and he's thinking too much, he's not fast. He's having to slow down to make sure he's in the right spot and doing the right things. Does the level of competition slash conference matter to scouts or is it just the player's tape and traits? This is very relevant based on... LaShawn Sims, who, who looks like his NFL caliber player as part of that depth you talked about at the corner, over Tajay Sharp, who came in with, with great production but at a lower level. Uh, I'm giving you a choice between an SEC guy who's had middling production and a, a non-BCS school who's had fantastic production. If their height, weight, and speed are, are similar, if, if they're similar guys to you, which do you prefer, which does John prefer? You know, I would think that uh, I would take the, the better conference because you're playing against the better players. If you're playing at a uh, Tennessee or Kentucky, or you're going to go up against the NFL caliber players on a weekly basis in the SEC. Or if you're playing at Utah State or, or uh, Southern Utah or, or a team like that, you're not going to get that opportunity until you go to an all-star game. LaShawn Sims is a great example of a player that on film you loved, but the, the receivers that he was playing against – we're not going to play in the NFL. Probably not playing in the Arena Football League or the Canadian Football League. He showed the, the outstanding athleticism, the size, the movement skills, all the things that you can grade as a scout. But once he went to the East-West game and started to produce against NFL caliber receivers, you saw him really grow in your eyes. And he had a nice grade from us. We got him at a later part of the draft, but actually had a better grade than that. And, and he's proven out to be that great. So, you know, those are the type of things you look for. But never discount production. Never discount a track record of success, whether it's a Tajay Sharp, who had a high amount of catches in his senior year, or a LaShawn Sims, who played at a Southern Utah with actually two other NFL caliber players on his team. One, the safety at Detroit, and one was a defensive end. I think he's in Oakland. But um, So there's there were some NFL caliber players on his team, just not that many that he was playing against. Right. So I would take the what you see on a daily basis and when you're playing at LSU or in the SEC or one of the Power Five conferences, you're seeing other NFL players. Somebody raised a good topic here that's perfect to, to engage with you because they don't take my word for it. Maybe I'm a little off. Player trades have become more common. We, we see them more often. But teams really like to have had a guy all the way through camp or to have your own guy who your fingerprints are on from, from the beginning. So even though they're more frequent, they're still rare. But people always wonder about value. Like somebody there asked about Rashard Matthews. 
You know, Rashard Matthews, pretty good receiver. Right now he's hurt. We don't know what it is. He's got one year left on on his contract. Uh, if you were on the other side of that, and I know you're not, you weren't doing the negotiating, but if somebody was offering you Rashard Matthews, I, I'm guessing, tell me if I'm right, you're, you're suspicious, first off, because he's been a key guy for you and you don't want him anymore. Uh, you don't have his rights for more than 16 games plus the playoffs. And uh, you'd be the second team, you know, quote-unquote, giving up on him. Miami didn't re-sign him, and now you'd be looking to trade him. How wary are uh, GMs of those kind of things? I imagine when thinking trade, you're generally scared. You really have to convince yourself that somebody's worth going to get. Yeah, there, there's there's a process you go through, and, and part of the process does the player fit for you. How, how is he going to fit for you? What are you giving away in, in return, the value of a draft choice or, or maybe a player uh, that you're going to give away in return? So you're going to value that. You're going to uh, actually put that side by side and say, you know, if we're giving up a Richard Matthews type player for a starting, you know, tight end, okay, how, val- how valuable is that tight end? So versus a draft choice. Um, so, you know, if you're getting a player like last year, the Titans traded a, a later round draft choice for David King. And they said, well, that David King is worth more than this draft choice we're going to select or the player we can select there. So at that point, we'll see this year if that pans out. Uh, but you're going to go through the process of first, does he fit? What's the value you're giving up? Money that's involved in that. But also, what can we find out about the player? Can the pro scouts from the Titans call pro scouts from other teams that he's been on and find out what type of locker room player is he? What type, how does he learn? The little things that maybe have been long from college where you can't go back to a college report on a player, but actually have to start getting information and maybe the general managers have a good relationship and you have to work together in that industry. There are 32 general managers and you really can't lead someone down a path of lying. So you can't lie Excuse to a general manager because at some time you're going to have to negotiate uh, with them again, and, and you don't want to have that reputation. There have been some in the past, but that's not something that uh, uh, you really want to do. So if you're asking up front about a player and how he learns and that type of thing, then you're going to get his best opinion. But it is the opinion of another team. Also, draft picks seem to be really highly valued. So that was a conditional seventh for David King. But David King hasn't done anything to right. distinguish himself uh, that, that you wouldn't get out of, say, Julius Wormsley, who's playing with the second team now. So even though that seventh rounder that they gave away was hardly a lock, in hindsight now, would you rather have had a guy to take a shot on in the seventh round than David King? It depends. Does David King come in? And he got an extension, right? Yeah, and does he come in and play in the rotation? Is he a guy that takes Carl Kluke's spot and is an upgrade over that type player? Um, I think that's going to be very important for David King. Now, could you have used that seventh-round pick on a receiver that had a height-weight-speed trait that you needed to come in and be that fifth receiver that was going to make your team as a special teams or or maybe an eventual developmental receiver? Well, that's something that they'll, you won't know now. But, um, you know, those are the type draft choices that you hate to give up because you never know what that player could turn into. Could it turn into a Corlin Finnegan? Could it turn into a Eugene Amato? Could it turn into a late-round LaShawn Sims, somebody like that? Yeah, it could. So, you know, it just depends on the draft, the depth of the draft. Uh, the Titans this year saw that they had more of a need for the quality of a player trading up for uh, all those draft choices. They gave away a lot of the later ones that um, can uh, affect your depth. There was a line after which, as a college scout, you had more pull 
in the draft room, and I imagine also as the college scouting director. Uh, some people have heard this story before, but some not. So you get to a certain point in the draft, and the GM tends to start to value more the guys people like you are standing on the table mm -hmm. for. Where Where is that line? And then what are you trying to do when you're given more of a chance maybe to sell your guy that not everybody knows with the same depth? You know, when you start looking at players, whether it's a college director or a scout, scout, you've got a total of about 1,400 players that the team is evaluating in the college uh, year. So you're going to have an area scout that's probably looking at and writing up 500-plus players. You're going to have a regional guy that's writing up 500-plus players. And you're going to have a director that's writing up 400 to 500-type players. That is a year-long process. For the general manager to go through and be able to see those top four or 500 is almost impossible. You're going to be able to see maybe the top 150, uh, but there are 250 total draft choices a year. And really feel good about that evaluation uh, as a general manager. So under Floyd Reese, uh, for a lot, Floyd uh, made a lot of good uh, decisions in, later in the draft, and he had a veteran scouting group that he listened to, whether it was a C.O. Bacato or a Cole Brockter or whoever it may have been on the scouting staff. And we got a lot of good players late in the draft because of him listening to his scouts, standing on the table, wanting a certain player late in the draft, and, and really giving them that ability to go out and um, put their stamp on that. Your impact uh, in, in terms of that, when you were that guy more after the third round, is that fair? Is I think so. Said? You know, you, you the GM's going to make the pick in the first three rounds, no doubt about it. Uh, part of the uh, knowing what your role is as a scout, you're going to let him do that because that's his job, that's your boss. And, you know, you've given all the information to him, and now it's time for him to go out and make that pick. And they're going to make those picks in the first three rounds. The fourth round on is usually uh, where the scouts really had their say. And whether for me it was like a Justin McCarron's early on and uh, Stephen Tollick or, you know, Corlin Finney or some of these players like that that, you know, you can have an impact on drafting late. Uh, I remember a receiver, Daryl Hill, that, you know, was a seventh rounder. He was a highway speed guy out of northern Illinois. And uh, he was just one of those players that you knew could come in and play a role. Carlos Hall at Arkansas was a – uh, really good pass rusher that we took in the seventh round. Even though we had Javon Kirst, Carlos fit exactly what we wanted to do. Jim Washburn was a defensive line coach, and he was a guy I recommended just because of what Carlos brought. And he had a very nice career for drafting him in the seventh round. There were some other scouts that did an excellent job with a Justin Hartwig or a Eugene Amano. Or, you know, we drafted so many offensive linemen late. And we knew what we had in the coach that was developing them. And you could take a talented guy like a, a Mono and eventually Munchak turn him into a starter. And same thing with Hartwig. Hartwig was a left tackle at Kansas, and he ended up playing center for a long time in the NFL just by based on our scouts' views and the offensive line coach developing. I know it used to be for uh, in camp that the whole scouting team would be in for a week or ten days and see all the guys around. I don't know. I'm not sure how it works now. You've always lived here, so you've been around watching them on a daily basis. So uh, you helped assess a guy who's a fifth rounder, who's not a lock for the roster, and you're watching him practice on a daily basis. How much input down the road did you have to say, hey, I see some things that I'm watching that suggest to me he is developing the X, Y, and Z we talked mm -hmm. about. Or, you know what, uh, you know, it's only been a month, but we thought that uh, 
he could really get the edge. And from what I've watched at practice, and I know you've all watched too, I don't, I don't see it happening. How much liberty did you have to say those things and how much influence were they? I think it depended on the coaching staff. It depended on your relationship with the coaching staff. When, when I was with Jeff Fisher and his staff pretty much stayed intact for the nine, ten years I worked with him, it was easy to walk down in some of the coaches' offices and say, you know, in college maybe he took, as a receiver, for example, maybe it took him, it takes him a little bit more time to learn. Are you giving him enough reps uh, away from the other receivers, outside the classroom? How are you teaching him? This is the way he best learns. Things that a scout knows from going and talking to his coach in college are, are some things that we did over those 10 days in training camp that uh, if you have those relationships, I think it's it's very important to have a relationship with the coach and whether it's the head coach or the position coach that you can get their ear at times and say, to better help this player, this is what he does best. This is how he learns best. These are the positions that he was in in college. And if we want him to have success, let's do that early on so he can continue to grow. So those are very important things to have, that relationship, like I said. And, and you know, having a general manager that says, yeah, go, go down, talk to the coaches, sit in those meeting rooms, watch them being taught by your assistant coaches. I can learn things as a scout. I can learn things about our team, but also I can help. Some coaches in later regimes reluctant, or you just didn't have the relationship. You know, it's hard to build that relationship and get that level of trust. You know, I'll say this: it, it was probably I don't remember a coach in particular, any of the staffs that that weren't willing to listen to the scout. Usually, scouts and coaches were kind of, of the same group, uh, work hand in hand. I was in the office all the time, so I had more access to them than the scouts that were on the road. But I was relaying some of that information. Uh, from a West Coast scout that was out scouting, and, and I was in the office able to take pl- take part in some of the uh, meetings that we had on a daily basis in training camp. So um, I thought they were all pretty acceptable. It's just learning their coaching style, how they're doing things, and kind of getting a familiarity with a brand-new coach. Quick reset, and we'll take a couple more questions before we wrap it up. I'm Paul Kuharski of paulkuharski.com. Uh, I write about the Titans and the NFL at a member's site. If you're a member of my site... You get everything I write. You get Periscope and Facebook Lives like this, except private. You're on a private Facebook page. You have access to an entire podcast, uh, and on and on. Tomorrow night, I'll stay up until the middle of the night, and I'll write a file with a note, at least one note, on every guy of the 90-man roster who plays in a game. It's an insane assignment that you guys seem to love. And now, as part of that membership, you get two pieces a week, from Blake Bettingfield, who scouted for the Titans for 19 years, was the college scouting director through 2017. All of this for the price of a fancy cup of coffee or mixed drink or fancy beer. $5.99 a month. You can get 12 months for the price of 11. Party Foul is on board as the sponsor of Blake. We're grateful for that. You're a hot chicken guy. I'm a hot chicken wimp, but the only hot chicken I've ever dared sample was at Party Foul. And that's your new place. Boozy, like here's the party file menu, right? Hot chicken, local brews, boozy slushes. You can get Pickers Vodka, which sponsors these broadcasts in the boozy slushes. You can get Yazoo Beer as a local beer. You can eat party file hot chicken, support the site all at once, plus $5.99 a month. It's nothing. This guy's bringing super extra added value. If you say that you're a big Titans fan and you're not a member of this, you're a liar. Simple as that. We've got about 10 more minutes if you want to throw some more topics out. Um, and I'm trying to think of something that won't overlap with what you've already written for tomorrow. Um, 
John Robinson is now very much more in control. Uh, he is the singular force because Mike Malarkey is not here anymore, and she he was Amy Adams Strunk's pick at, as the coach. Now John's done the hiring. I know John's not walking around the building any differently, but when you assume that level of control, he's the most powerful football person in the building unquestionably now. Do things change at all for him, or is he he's coming up now too? On he inherited a left tackle who he managed to get under a new contract. He's going to have a quarterback decision to make, and he's going to need to see what his quarterback does this year. You know, I don't think there's any different walking in the office. Uh, this is what you want. When you're a general manager and you somewhat inherited a head coach, um, even though they were kind of hired at the same time, he kind of inherited uh, malarkey. You want to have your own guy. You want to have the person that shares the uh, the same vision of players, the same vision of offense and defense, and, and work together. And, you know, it's going to be important for, for Rabel to start off. He's got a team that just came off a playoff. Uh, he's got a roster that's ready to win now. This is, you mentioned Taylor Lewan getting the big contract. He's obviously the highest paid offensive uh, lineman in history, um, which I think I mentioned on your show that and day. You said he was the best athlete and on the team. He's paid like that. And he's you've got a quarterback that's going into his years where it's now time to produce. Unfortunately, he's had to deal with a number of head coaching changes, a number of offense coordinator changes, a number of quarterback uh, position changes. That's tough. That's tough for anybody. Uh, look at the list of Super Bowl winning quarterbacks. You don't see a huge turnover in offense coordinators, head coaches, and quarterback coaches on a yearly basis and have success. But Marcus is the type of guy that's going to uh, take it and run with it. And he's in those prime years where it's time to win. And uh, if you don't take advantage of it now, uh, it's going to be tough. But John's got his guy in place in Brable, and it's, there's not a lot of time to take it slow. There's not a lot of time to, to work through mistakes. You've got to come off and start the season on a strong note. And, and really, their season starts on Thursday night. Uh, as, as little as people put into the preseason from a fan aspect, for a team and a personnel and a coaching staff, it is imperative that you start off well. Whether you win the game or not, not as much a concern. You want to win all of them. But, you know, it's, it's how the starting offense plays, how the starting defense plays, special teams. Are they starting to define roles? Uh, and the players that you have pegged as a two-deep player, are they producing to that level? Are we going to have to go out and find somebody else? I think it's very important. Starting Thursday night, you're going to see a lot of the backups play, and, and it's how they play on Thursday night that's going to determine whether some of them make the roster on the 53. Somebody asking about Vaccaro. We will cover him tomorrow. Um, how much – tell us about your process. Somebody's asking about if you'd be credentialed. You're not coming to games. You study film. How uh, so? Tomorrow night, do you watch the game on TV, and then how quickly do you have uh, the All Twenty Two? How significant is it to watch the All Twenty Two versus the TV tape? And kind of what's your process for watching a game at scouting? I think it's important to watch the All Twenty Two because it's hard to watch an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman from uh, just the TV view. You really need to see the, the sideline and the, and the end zone view where you can evaluate what they're doing, what their steps are. There, there's some technical and fundamental things that uh, you hope that they're on point at this, at this time you have at least four of the five starters, uh, going to play tomorrow. Should uh, Jack Conklin's still out, but he'll eventually be okay. And then you'll get that group back together. So I think that's very important. That's, that's real important to a new offense to have a, stable group of offensive linemen together 
quarterback obviously is the same, even though everything's changing for him. The court, uh, one of the running backs is different. Uh, the receivers aren't healthy yet. So, you know, there's some, the important thing is to have that stable group of five. But I think the all 22 is very important. Uh, it's uh, good to watch it on television. I think TV viewing is underrated at times for a scout. I remember when I first started scouting that scout said, don't be a TV scout. But I think there's things you can grab from there. Um, and I've always liked it. I like the live view at times for certain positions, but not really for every position. In you the, can't in the see the safety where he lines up at the right. beginning, right, on, sure. on a TV tape. So no right away you don't know what exactly the uh, approach is there. Certain stuff, you absolutely, it sounds like offensive line. Mm-hmm. All 22 is particularly helpful. I imagine no that deep safety, you, you need to see it from, from a higher angle. Sure. No telling where they playing, what his what his instincts are. You know, you've got uh, a really good safety in Kevin Byard, and and Vaccaro's a veteran guy, so he's going to come in and and he's it's not like he's learning anything really new. Uh, he's working with a really good one. There should be a veteran group of of DBs there with Butler and Ryan and uh, Dory's uh, still young, but he's working himself into that. He's in year two, so you know it's a, it's a good group for a new guy to come into. You got a hidden. Gem on this roster, or somebody that you you would like to see do well that you think's got what it takes, and you hope it comes out of them. You know, I I think that what what I would like to see is uh, how Aaron Wallace is going to play this year. You know, Aaron has the ability, and he's just been dinged up a little bit. He was another one of those late round draft choices, but he has the ability to give you something in the pass rush game. He's smart enough to where he could kind of play that Nate Palmer role where he could be an outside-inside special teams player. Uh, the, the big thing with him is staying healthy. Uh, you know. But I think Aaron is a nice backup-type player that if you had to play with him for two or three weeks, you're not going to miss much. So you know, it's one of those things where I think he just needs the time and to be healthy and to play. So he's kind of that sleeper guy that didn't play a lot last year at all and has an opportunity to actually make the team and, and, and play some. Reed, directly from a scout. What he's looking for going into a game, what he's seen coming out of a game. Once we're in the regular season mode, you'll hear from from Blake on the site at uh, on Friday afternoons and on Monday afternoons. His debut column will run tomorrow at paulkuharski.com. If you can't get below the read more line, you're missing out. This was big sales pitch. Pleased to announce it. Really looking forward to working together. You've always been good to me, and uh, I think it's a win-win situation. So we're going to start working on our hot chicken appetites for party foul. We certainly know what the chasers will be. Blake, great to have you on board. Thanks a lot. Looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Pass this around. Rewatch. There better be some membership stuff waiting for me when I get online. It's time if you haven't pulled the trigger. Thanks to Pickers in particular sponsoring the video casts. Uh, Appreciate all your support. Look forward to uh, providing you with more and more good content with this guy's help. Thanks. The Paul Kaharski Podcast is a joint production of paulkaharski.com and Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com. Now.com.